And so only for the past 50 years has, you know, most of at least America even bothered to think about, you know, difficult emotions outside of, you know, shame and guilt and, oh my God, I have to go to counseling because I'm all fucked up. And instead of realizing like, this is like sort of guaranteed, it's a natural result of having this you know, weird yoga of public education. I call it the sitting injury. The sitting injury. Oh, because, because you have to spend so much time sitting in that little seat, you mean? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an advanced yoga that we're not actually properly instructed on. You and know, it's like, well, before, before we for fucking sit down for eight hours a day, I mean, you know, we're not really built for that, you know, especially not at, at a young age. So, yeah, it's a sitting injury where we're sort of like injured, um, you know, metaphorically, spiritually, uh, intellectually, cognitively, physically sometimes. So I'm old enough to where I was actually hit. I was struck, paddled. Uh, my hand was smacked with rulers. I was paddled, you know, probably more than 100 times in elementary school. So, uh, but yeah, shame, guilt, whatever. But yeah, the sitting injury. Because if you're not good at the yoga, then, you know, they don't teach you how to be better at it. They just, you know, one way or the other, you're going to sit there. So you're saying at that time that the teachers were permitted to, to like, physically strike the students? Mm-hmm. Well, not not in the head, but they would smack your hand. Uh, I was left-handed. They tried to make me switch to right hand. I'm 47. My first grade teacher tried to uh, make me sit on my left hand and learn to write with my right. And then, you know, sometimes when she caught me, she would smack my hand with one of those little wood rulers. But, yeah, every teacher had a paddle. And then after they got tired of paddling you, they'd send you to the office and then the principal would, you know, give you a little bit harder of a, a wallop. My goodness, my goodness. Yeah. And, and you, you're talking about enforced right-handedization, that those who are left, left-leaning, left the, the Wittishans among us, were actually required to sort of spin the other way. Yeah, and that was the tail end of that. But that used to be a big fucking deal, like in the you know, 40s, 50s, and 60s. Like, they really wanted kids to be right-handed and I think you know they did know a little bit that that was uh, a more profited a proper a more proper cognitive placement for you know for prehension it's like they're you know I think they did have a sort of inkling that you know what hand expresses dominant prehension was uh, had a qualitative effect on personality and demeanor and, and basically receptivity Okay, that's really interesting, because especially if you look at right now, I mean, it seems like the realm of discourse, I mean, the sort of conversations I like to have on this show are the kinds that you don't often have. What seems to be everyone's on everyone's mind is the left versus the right these days, and they mean them politically. But I wonder if this sort of like grows out of that, you know what I mean? That there's sort of like these sort of opposite poles of of what uh, means of, of brain function, or like the way the person expresses themselves through, through the medium of the brain. Or, I mean, what do you think on that? I, I'm not, it's been a long time since I looked into that stuff, but there's a guy named Joseph Ledoux, L-E-D-O-U-X. There's uh, Sperry, a guy named Sperry, Vivish, uh, uh, God, I forget the guy's last name, but Vivish something. And then there's uh, Derek Kirkov, who wrote some books with uh, Marshall McLuhan, um, wrote a book called The Alphabet and the Brain in the late 80s, and they studied uh, the, the literacy thesis from a you know, scientific medical monitoring apparatus perspective, from a laboratory perspective, real-time you know, EEG and um, various magnetic metering, gal- you know, galvanic skin response and all that stuff to uh, various testing to try to prove certain theories uh, Let's see, there's a woman, God, I can't remember her name. Uh, she brought, she talks about the, the wrong hand and the right hand. Uh, there's an art book about, but it's called lateralization. So literacy switches the face. So the same general part of our brain that recognizes faces is also the same part of our brain that recognizes uh, hexagrams, letters, and symbols. So it it over 
trains the prefrontal cortex and the visual systems. So it sort of like melts all of this stuff together into a larger uh, subset. So more gray matter is occupied by the, you know, so the, the voyeuristic notion that's built into, you know, Western aesthetics and philosophy and everything else, you know, there's a, there's a real basis for it because we're, you know, we're wired up a different way, very much sight based. And so the prehension and the, you know, the dominant hand has to do with how that visual system, that visual synaptic circuit gets lateralized. And so it can pull into parts of the brain that make the personality, you know, more sort of uh, mischievous and precocious and so on. So, uh, but I don't really, I don't recall the particulars. I think her name was Capriati, but there's a lot of research on it. It was a really big thing in the late 80s, up into the mid 90s, and then it just sort of got dropped. Mostly in Canada as well, but it was also a big part of the UNESCO funding, world literacy and shit. You know, they they really took an interest in McLuhan's ideas, and uh, you know, for a few decades, really put a lot of money into the research of that. You know, literacy development, pedagogy, and so on. But I mean, pedagogy is is sort of like, I mean, if you think about like, you know. When you're when you're overthinking things and you're and you're applying extremely abstract ideas and abstract concepts and um, you know these convoluted sort of critical um, scaffoldings to sort of you know identify and, and uh, surgically sort of like isolate and remove things you don't like or you know political issues or you know social issues or personal issues or whatever economic issues and and we're really in this headspace intellectualizing and, and just making this like extremely ridiculous Rube Goldberg sort of device about our experience, you know, 99 out of a hundred times when you're doing that, you're sitting still and you're sitting down and probably there's a rectangle of some sort in front of you, whether it be a screen or a chalkboard or a phone um, or a desk or a fucking wall windshield so and I think people discount you know the the proprioceptive mode in which we cognize you know it's like were you moving or sitting still it doesn't fucking matter I think it does maybe it does what do you think right right you're talking about like I mean the, the interaction with shapes because if you're in a Okay, so like I've spent a lot of time aboard a ship. There's not a lot of squares or rectangles that you see. I mean, the the, the sail. If you've got if you've got like you know that sort of rigging, possibly. But then but then it's if there's any wind whatsoever, you know, it's distended. You know, it's bulging out, and so it's not really a rectangle. It's like a it's like a parallelogram, depending on the angle you're standing from and those curves and stuff. And then the wheel is round, and the ship is is curved and all that. And the horizon's horizontal. But there's no vertical. Okay, you got okay, okay. So the closest thing to a square would be if you were, if you were. No, you can't even see it if you're on the ship. If you're looking at another ship, and you're and you're and you're side onto it, you know, if you're about to, if they're going to broadside you, you could see a square between the horizon right. or, or or the deck lines, yeah. and their masts. But you wouldn't have you wouldn't have the top side to it. So really, like a square is almost not to be found at sea, you know. Whereas, like right now, for example, I'll, I'll admit to you, yeah, I'm sitting in front of a laptop. It's got a rectangular right in front of it, and I've got a jewel case for a CD cassette, uh, and that's that's almost a square. Oh yeah, this is called "Let Your Soul Be Your Pilot: Finding Your Direction in Life" by Bill O'Hanlon. I don't think you can get it anywhere anymore, at least in whoops this format, because uh, this is actually this is a CD-ROM, so I have to travel back in time a little bit to actually find the devices that can that can make this operate you know but it basically bill hanlon uh ms is a licensed mental health professional certified professional counselor and a licensed marriage and family therapist he's authored or co-authored 29 books he's one of the developers of solution-oriented therapy and the founder of possibility and inclusive therapies since 1977 
Bill has been counseling people and organizations to help them determine what their goals are and to remove the barriers to their success. He's given over 2,000 seminars or workshops around the world, and he has uh, five more CDs available if, if you're in a decade where CDs exist. I will read the uh, titles of this very quickly uh, since we are at about the halfway point here, and then we'll proceed with our interview with Zumi. Uh, but if you're, if you're interested in Bill O'Hanlon's CDs, he's got Meetings with a Remarkable Man, Personal Tales of Milton H. Erickson. Uh, he's got Calm... Oh, yeah, 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 we can talk about that. You're familiar with Erickson. Yeah, yeah, and NLP and the structure of magic and all that. Yeah, very cool shit. Yeah, okay, and then is, is another another CD that he has is Calm Beneath the Waves, Help Relieve Panic, Anxiety, and Desperation. Uh, his third one is called Beside Yourself with Comfort, Hypnotic Help for Chronic or Acute Pain Relief. Uh, the fourth of these five is called Keep Your Feet Moving, Favorite Teaching and Healing Tales. And the final one is called Moving On, Two Healing Trances for Resolving Sexual Abuse Issues. So Bill O'Hanlon, uh, oh, they did have a website back then already, crownhousepublishing.com or crownhouse.co.uk. Who knows? Uh, I mean, this is 2022. I've tried to find even just a device in my vicinity that can play this thing. I have yet to listen to this CD, but I've had it on my desk for a long time and uh and it's sort of my so quest a great place to, a great place to look would be a church-based uh thrift store because they take all the junk they don't throw anything away so like you'll find some crappy cd player for five bucks you know like that the catholic our lady of the lake whatever thrift store oh that's a good idea right 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 because you can find all technology at basement prices almost you know uh it's like they don't know what they've got their hands on yeah, and Goodwill, at this point, they throw away anything that's sort of beat up, and then all the really good shit they sell online. So it's really hard to find that kind of stuff at Goodwill anymore. It used to be a treasure trove. The the other, the place, the thing that's still a treasure trove at most Goodwills is the, um, the cord basket and the vinyl records. So, like, they have big bins of, like, power cords and shit, but sometimes you can find, like, XLR microphone uh chords in there guitar chords uh like little activation pedals for you know electronic you know musical electronics keyboard keyboard pedals and then um like chargers so if you have a laptop and like the replacement charger is like 60 bucks and you know the rating on everything then you can go find it in a bin at goodwill for 50 cents no way no way okay well actually okay i'll, I'll admit uh, a fine a fine thing i like to do if i've got my uh I've got the wherewithal to sort of hop through time, but I don't have a lot of financial resources, is to go to one of these places like you described. There's a lot of like resale shops, thrift stores, they call them. Uh, sometimes they're named after various saints or, or, or like expressions of positive virtue, even though the profits oftentimes go to like a corporation or a family, you know. Uh, and and what, you, what you do then is you go in there, you buy up all the old technology for very cheap, then you... Then you find out how to rehabilitate it. You know, it needs you need to get that stuff like polished, and then you take it back through time, back to when it was first coming out, and you sell it at like you know, like at like you know scalpers prices or whatever. You know, like either more right. than the real thing or a little bit less. It just came out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, right. <laughs> check check out my my Walkman, my Sony Walkman. To name another corporation. Um, okay, so I actually do. I do have uh, another sponsor. I need to. I need to mention quick before we get on to our next topic. Uh, and and this this one is psychicwarehousefurniture.com. Uh, to 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 sort of put a put a, a vertical bracket between that and a previous topic. These are not used goods. Uh, Psychic warehouse furniture. These are these are warehouse prices, but brand new items. All your internal furnishing needs. Their slogan is, we know what you want. Uh, I know that I've had this problem from time to time. I'm more likely sure that you have. And that's you finding yourself through a warehouse furniture depot. And there's so many sofas to choose from. There's so many Ottomans. And you don't even have an empire. You might have a, a, t a coffee table there. and and But there's no you know coffee in the place. So you're feeling a little sluggish. And, and the, and the salesperson is trying to direct you toward a lampshade that you're not particularly interested in well well says over at psychicwarehousefurniture.com they know what you want so when you walk in the door they direct you precisely to that part of the store and then you get out of there without wasting any time so so much for that says 
Uh, and back to back to our interview here with Zumi. Uh, so Zumi, I've got I've got a little bit of juicy gossip. I know I know we've been talking about the philosophical element of things and, and getting into the deep ideas, but some of our audience, you know, they're just here for the for the juicy bits. So so I know there's sort of um I mean there was a there's sort of a broadsheet put out uh, recently announcing and I and I've heard some some sort of back and forth on this, so so definitely give me your your take. Uh, they call it the debate of the decade. Uh, Exile Deschamps versus Zumi, and then and the the sort of press release that I saw for it has a lot of like inflammatory quotations between the two of you, but it says almost nothing about what either of you actually like stand for or what your actually disagreement is. Uh, is is there anything you'd like to tell our audience really you know shortly on that? Oh, well, not really. I don't have a personal like. There's not like a point of contention where I'm like, you know this needs to be different or you've got something wrong. They're just rude. Um, and so it, it really just comes down to they don't know how to be sort of banal in a, com- in a communal environment. And so it, it really just comes down to aggressive sort of trolling and just general antisocial, you know, rude etiquette. It's really all it comes down to. I mean, they put on quite a show. It's very interesting to be in their headspace, but they don't know how to share other people's um, sort of like the, the the public social. They don't really know how to sort of appreciate like other people. So what? Not me. I'm just saying in general, it's just sort of a claustrophobic event, you know, to, to have them around uh, yelling and talking over everybody and Consulting people. And... Okay, so so would you would you refer to this as like a meta debate then, or something? Because I mean, I know like like uh, Exiles recently sort of come out with his his new. I mean, he used to talk a lot about his his previous project with with cybernetic yoga and then cybernetic alchemy, and there was sort of uh, his work with uh, with vaporwave sans frontier. But but his most recent um, sort of sort of well, actually this is I can review this. this is a private message to myself uh, is his concept of left void capital V lower case L left void he told me uh, is all about contemplating self annihilation as the nature of existence moment to moment you develop an occult mythology of the human passion uh, you do you do what Jung was on about he says we, we all develop a snake in our boot can't tell nobody without shamanistic uh, Consider Jesus like Son Goku. Imagine a gaping hole in your chest. So, so that's you know, it's sort of a poetic way of addressing something that I, I'm not quite sure where it's going yet, but it's an interesting concept. But you're saying you're saying that it's not really the philosophical difference. You're interested more in in talking about like the ethics of debate itself and and how you like interact with these interchanges of opposing views. Well, I don't really care. I mean, it's it's not really a problem with anyone else. I think the community wants to have exile around. And I'm not, I don't speak for the community. Um, they speak for themselves, but occasionally they'll be like, hey, let's, let's bring them back. And it's just never a good time for anybody. Uh, I think there's a lot that's been lost. He used to be, I think, more creative. And I don't I mean, having a gay... Visualizing a gaping hole in your chest is like, um, I mean, that sounds like what happens when you do a ritual wrong and you get partially consumed by a Gnostic demon. It doesn't really, I don't know. I, I, I don't have time for that. I don't have time to sit around and visualize a gaping void in my chest. But that is uh, that is an interesting aside because that's sort of where our life force resides. So I think uh, you know, a big part of a big trade-off that we have when we're socialized into the group, you know, first through, I guess, family and then public education is there is sort of like a Freudian shaming of the life force. Yeah. I think a lot of people feel, feel their life force in the chest. So if you sort of suffer undue or more frequent, um, or more robust, just constant, um, ambient just tempering of your life force the tempering aspect turns into shaming and sort of attacking and abusing so i think that you know a lot of people already 
visualize a void in their chest. I think that's a pretty common experience. And that's what, um, you know, I would say that a lot of people would want to find a way to ameliorate that. So that's interesting. You know, it's a very poison path, uh, tantric kind of uh, way to go. But I mean, that's sort of the purpose of Tantra is like, you know, you get there any way you want. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you're talking about how would, how would one go about ameliorating uh, this sort of, so say, so say, so exile saying, uh, I suppose, you know, uh, visualize this thing as, as, as not being there, I guess sort of be the case. And you're saying a lot of people are already there, but they're maybe not as aware of it as they are now. And then you, you suggested that perhaps there's an opposite way. How, how would, how would this be approached? Do you think? Well, again, I mean, it's like a yoga, half a yoga, you know, uh, what is that? The Anahata chakra. So I don't know. You would do heart chakra work, heart opening work. You could use the microcosmic orbit. Um, so the circulation of, of prana through the upper body circuit. So a lot of, a lot of Kundalini yoga teaches that, uh, Montak Chia teaches that. So, but I don't know because I'm not a not a yogi, so I can't really tell anyone how to open their heart chakra. But I would say that that's that would be one way. But you know, you could do mantra, you could do uh, karma yoga, you could do service. You know, so because that's sort of like you know the shared space, the inside and the outside. So that would be about sort of like forging a new relation with the group or finding a group if you don't have one or switching groups if you need a group that's more opening welcoming i don't know uh, you know i'm not in charge of uh any kind of school or philosophy or i'm just a researcher you know sort of basically much like a lot of people in the community just possessed with an idea and the general idea overlaps in this immense spin, spin diagram where everybody sort of has their own name for it, which is kind of like what the, that's sort of the American way. It's like refusing to actually um, affiliate yourself with any type of training or school or, you know, basically refusing to find a guru or find a, a a school or a philosophy or a religion that that would um, sort of bind you in a time-tested manner. So I guess we get overrun with the mania and just come up with uh, these spontaneous systems. We all we all seem to have one, and uh, it's hypo season, so there's a lot of there's like an uptick of of systems building right now interesting interesting okay now uh so two things on that when when you're saying that there's sort of like this every man his own guru thing going on but no one's got any disciples almost right 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 and then and then the other point uh you said a hypo season uh can you tell us a little bit more about this so we had spoke about that briefly earlier and you uh ascribed it to misrule which you know i think is is definitely uh, a very poignant way to to look at it but just um i don't know what it is about this time of year but it seems to have an upswing in mania where people sort of like their energy dynamo cranks out more poetic juice than usual artistic poetic uh Jusants and people just sort of bubble over and they have to share their it's usually their unique view of the world that is the true view of the solution of the problem of you know all existence which I mean that's good you know it means you're you're thinking in the right place you know you're not like talking about fantasy football or something I mean it's it's relevant. So, you know, it's, it's basically just the existential 
like, know, like the a, existential trope. Yeah, the yeah, it's trope it's like of, of modernity. You know, like everything's fucked up. You know, what the fuck are we gonna do about it? Right, right, and, and it seems like when you have it, you get this sort of emergence. This happens on like a time plateau almost, right? It's like you reach a sort of crisis in your in your civilization, and all of a sudden, like the alarm bells go off subconsciously, and it's like, all right, we need something new. And it's almost like the the civilization as a whole sort of like tries everything at once and see what sticks almost. Yeah, right. Well, Gopi Krishna talked about how you know he he guessed that there would be more and more uh, frequent spontaneous spiritual awakenings as we proceeded into the future, and he he speculated this in like the seventies. So, and I think that's true. I mean. I had a spontaneous awakening. Uh, I was not studying yoga or meditating. I'd never done that stuff in my life. I'd never read about it, never thought about it. I would have made fun of anybody that did it. Uh, and I think there's a lot of people that I don't have her name, but there is a woman. She's part of like the the Galileo committee or something. I don't know. But she uh, her name's like Colette something. But she had a spontaneous awakening. So this is becoming um a field of research. There's a guy named Jeffrey Martin who has the persistent non-symbolic experience institution or something, but he calls it persistent non-symbolic experience. So it's like, it's non-duality. There's it's, it's the absence of a symbol set. It's just like an experience of sort of like a vivid experience of energy and like openness. Um, it's sort of like meta relation, like you're connected to everything and you're so connected to everything that you don't need to monitor the connections. You don't need to monitor the points of relation because you're so, you know, you're so fully hollow that you're just uh, a tributary of all of this, you know, life essence and cosmic Shakti and so on that you don't have to be critical about your relations, which that's what a lot of philosophy and, and politics is, is uh, a hypervigilance towards relation points in the environment um and all you know all philosophies really are are sort of a subjective uh confession about how you relate to your experience and most people relate to their experience at least partially sort of in a defensive posture sort of withdrawing from you know putting one arm up people don't really lean into their uh broader relational environment and young calls you know calls this the anima our our point of relation our sort of like the archetype of relation itself how we relate to relation and buddhism does a really good job of this um as well uh, of sort of making you aware what is it the 42 mental formations and i think Tantra has 51 or something. So uh, some systems have a few more, but it's just giving yourself these checkpoints where you can sort of monitor how you effectively are embodying your orientation towards relation. Um, but I would say that people are on the right track or someone's on the right track when they're no longer sort of policing uh, every interaction that they have, whether it be a thought or, uh, you know, uh, a visual or a person or a group or a, a place when you can sort of jettison the old negative, emotional, affective experience of something. First of all, that would be, I would say, you know, the fastest way to deal with things would be to become curious about those loads, those affective loads. And find ways, find systems, Buddhism, whatever. Um, I don't think, I mean, I think Jung is great. He's like the pinnacle of thinking, thinking about it. But there's really not, he doesn't have a system other than active imagination and psychoanalysis, um, which is super fucking insulting because it's so expensive that, you know, only rich assholes can afford it. Um, I think Jung get you going in the right direction but you have to jump over into an established system but i do think that young got closer than most people to being able to intellectually sort of organize the spontaneous 
vitality of affect. So it's like he said that the gods have become diseases. Zeus no longer rules Olympus. He resides in our solar plexus, which again, back to the void, back to the the shaming of the life essence. Um, James Hillman called it pathologizing. So our imagination creates demons. Our imagination personifies experiences. Um, and if we don't personify experiences, then we spontaneously magnetize the affects to a icon of blame, whether it be a person or a, a political symbolic object or a religious or social cultural object or symbol or person. We spontaneously ascribe overwhelming experiences and feelings to external objects, whether they be sentient or, you know, inert. Um, and that's, you know, that's a point of magic. Like that is the ability to ascribe the cognitive experience of affect to objects. That's a type of animism. Definitely. So the Jungian system gives you a way to sort of, uh, sort and filter out dominant sort of tropes and themes. Um, but Buddhism gives you a way to work with it, but, but Jung gives you a way to see it in a way that's more familiar perhaps to a lot of people that are more oriented towards the voyeuristic and then, but ultimately you're going to have to jump ship, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, honestly, you know, everybody loves exile. Um, it's just, he doesn't really love other people. So, I mean, I really don't have a beef with him or, or anyone at all. It's just like, if somebody is rude to you and mean to you and attacks you or, or attacks, you know, people around you constantly, it's just obnoxious. It's just overwhelming. And, and if you have the choice to have that person leave the group or leave the group to go somewhere else, like I think a lot of people don't like that discordian atmosphere. Uh, and some people do. And some people can only can only function in that sort of like misruled uh, discordian sort of uh, 4chan approach to things, that's where they've sort of evolved to communicate and socialize. And other people don't want to do that all the time. They want to break from it or they don't want to do it at all. And so I think that's just a, I don't know what you call it. Some kind of like self-reflective hygiene. It's like, oh, I don't, I don't talk this way over here or I don't do this with this group or I don't know you know it's fine it's fine everybody can do what they want but I, I really truly don't have a, a point of contention there's no philosophical system to contend with on either side there's not I never wanted to debate anybody I, I didn't ask for a clarification or an argument uh, I just don't like the way exile treats people that aren't you know, in his little group of six or seven people that are willing to sort of just give him an endless audience. At some point, you have to give the world, you know, your own attention and audience. You have to be the audience for the world at some point, instead of constantly trying to be, you know, the cartoon metaphysician, Steven Universe. But I mean, everybody loves him. He's, he really is uh, very entertaining. And at times endearing and adorable, but I also do think he's got, you know, some shit he's, uh, needs to deal with, or I don't know. I mean, I really don't know. Well, it's not, it's not something I think about other than when like he appears and it's like, oh fuck, you know, here we go with people arguing for the next however long until, you know, exile leaves basically. Okay, so it's almost like it's almost like when the circus rolls into town. You know, you've got like the sleepy little like Hamlet in the Midwest, perhaps, and, and everyone's got their like ordinary day-to-day -day routines, and and they relate to their neighbors with a particular sense, and, and they do the same sort of things, you know, every every week or so. But then all of a sudden, like posters go up around town, and it's like, oh, here comes the circus, right? And maybe you've never been to the circus or seen a circus, or it was a different circus last time, but you've got an idea of like what's what's going to be happening next. And then it goes off, you know, and it, and it involves everybody and, and crazy shit happens and there's all kinds of like wild characters running around. 
and then it's all gone, you know, and it's like over, and then maybe it comes back like next year or like two weeks later or like who knows when, right? Because the circus doesn't have a schedule. It's exactly like that. Yeah, it's exactly like that, except for, you know, it's, I guess, more of like a, God, what are the juggalos or whatever? It's more of like a Gnostic circus than it is just like a, you know, an all-ages circus. It's, it's a little bit more existential. Definitely. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And and I think part of it is that is that um, the combat, you know, because like I, I think for a lot of people now, combat is largely relegated to either the opposite hemisphere of the world or or on on your nearest available rectangle. If you you know some people are really into watching mixed martial arts fights, for example, uh, a lot of the podcasters are interested in that. Uh, air, air, wink, wink, double wink. And, and then we've also got like like you know bullfight. Bull, thankfully, bullfightings mostly on the way out but they still but now they've got like the anti-bull fight which is interesting where the bulls are the stars and the men get destroyed that's sort of like the western approach i guess you know it still has that sort of like iberian like panache to it but it's like these guys getting their spines broken as they like bounce up and down on the back of the bull it's neither way neither way i think both ways are a bit imbalanced if the man and the bull met each other and and uh and how would it work they'd either i mean in the old days, like in Crete, for example, we used to what we'd do is we'd face him without a weapon, and the bull would come at you. So the bull has the advantage at the outset, but you've got the advantage because you can maneuver still, you know, obviously. But you don't ride on its back. You like you like grab it by the horns, do a backflip, do a little dance on its back, and then and then if it's a sacrificial moment, plunge the knife in. But for for most of the time, you just sort of you know you leap off the tail or you grab it by the tail or something, and you kind of you know because it's all just for show. It's just to like impress the ladies, I think. I don't know if it works, but it, there's something about like this like male aggression in that's that's performance space. You know, birds have it too. You know, you've got like the the sort of tiff uh, between two sparrows or something, two two peacocks, two two owls. Even a, a cockatoo fight is is really something to behold. Uh, though though I think it's illegal to bet on them in in this country. Oh, that's right. Yeah, they used to have uh, rooster fights when I was a kid, where I grew up. They would be in the tobacco barns. No way. So, so it would be like, like you're talking like male chickens. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's funny. I forgot about that. I've never seen a bullfight. I've been the rodeo a couple times, but um, We've been talking for an hour and a half. I've really enjoyed it. I want to do it again. Maybe next time uh, we can make some notes and double back on some things or be slightly more structured. I don't know. I, I, I guess I just really enjoy um, having an avenue to discuss this stuff because it's not, you know, it's sort of like we're in a a, a more rarefied form of reflection it's not necessarily good it's like there's metacognition and there's meta metacognition and we're sort of like in the ditch of meta metacognition by default and there's really you know the problem is it's like once you become aware of all of this stuff you can't unsee it and i think that's you know part of the the exacerbation of, of political you know antagonism i think it's a is an attempt to sort of weaponize and operationalize the uh, the the assumptive world. You know, it's like the world's supposed to function on all these rules, and at this point, we all know that, that those rules don't govern the world anymore. And there's these other sort of duplicitous, clandestine rules that are being applied by you know nefarious people and nefarious mechanisms. Uh, there's no way to actually identify what it is, and so it's uh, it wants to seduce everyone into conjecture, conspiracy, um, finger pointing, politics, and I think that's definitely being sort of amplified by uh, by the media, the information horizon. You know, we're not given the information. We're not given valuable information. We're giving we're given media instead. So we're like we're inside the information horizon, and then we're even further inside another information another 
horizon, which is the media horizon. So we're basically getting no useful information. Um, and they're doling out basically knee jerk antagonistic affect, eliciting, you know, experience for people solving no problems. There's no discourse for solution on, on any level. Uh, and so I do think that that's being operationalized. It's really interesting because, you know, the, the theme of the subreddit was, uh, what is it? Is it invoking the apocalypse? No. What is it? I think, I think the word was, was conjuring. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so now it's like, you know, everybody, especially since COVID, I think is having, you know, this sort of mystical experience where they sort of see the apocalypse, which is like, you know, the, there's not a there's not a mapping of the things that are applied as rules or are presented as rules. There's no mapping to our new experience post COVID. So there's no there's no way to even talk about it because it just doesn't line up. It's just not true. Whatever it is, it's not true. So it creates quite a a mania inside people that aren't used to feeling that way. I think that's the most interesting aspect is like all these, you know, normal people with their nice homes and their nice cars and their nice uh, bank accounts are suddenly thinking like uh, degenerate, you know, 4chan metaphysicians and they don't know, you know, what to do with that. So I think that's kind of funny, a little bit of comeuppance for all the assholes who thought that they were going to get to just go on vacation forever yeah. we're all somewhere else now right right philosophy as a way of coming around again i'm looking out my window right now it's a snowy uh snowy afternoon or actually morning still here isn't it uh it is it's almost noon two minutes to noon here and there's there's a woodpecker red red head black and white body pecking away uh straight ahead of my field of view you just kind of poking away at sort of a diagonal branch so that's that's really interesting uh okay zoomy so that was that was really profound i think and uh and one that all of us should certainly mull over uh is there anything you'd like to sort of sort of part with before before i take us to a little uh a musical musical moment and uh and that last advertisement okay so i would say that um I mean, not to sound sanctimonious or anything, but I do think that the primary means through which consciousness arose and the primary means through which, or one of the primary means that consciousness evolves is through an ethical engagement with the world. So in other words, what expands consciousness and what allows consciousness to thrive in each and every one of us and at large is sort of like an a priori agreement to askew and avoid and ameliorate violence in any way possible. Um, so, I mean, I don't have an issue with anyone, any, any group, any person. I try my hardest to work through those things at a personal level because that's the only place that I have control of those experiences. I can't reorganize my external world but i would just i would leave i would leave you with that that like i think people often overlook like people like to talk about consciousness and the evolution of this and that but i think the reason why we're able to to inhabit this space to begin with this luxurious space of surplus and you know overabundance is because you know everybody's worked together for many many centuries to sort of like weed out violence, work through it, uh, find other means of acquiring what you need. And I do think that, you know, we're in danger of sort of forgetting like how we got here, which I think is, and again, that's, it's a personal sort of like, uh, like the reason why I'm not, uh, violent or, um, accusatory of groups or people or races or whatever is because I'm choosing to not convert 
general ambient personal frustrations into um, impulses for violence uh, against myself or anyone else. And, but I think also I'm just lucky that I don't carry that burden. I think a lot of people struggle a lot more with, uh, you know, violent you know, suicidal ideations or, or whatever, uh, you know, violence towards the world or whatever. And I think, I think that's really like what we need to focus on is finding ways for people to ameliorate urgency before it gets, you know, at a level of pressure that is not sort of, cause I mean, I think that's where, you know, psychosis, neurosis, pathology, that's where it comes from. It's an overabundance of energy that gets dammed up and it's not allowed to be expressed. And then people think, oh, I have to I have to express it by, you know, doing damage or killing myself or or being mean or hurting somebody or being physical or whatever. Um, so I think that would be the primary purpose of, you know, philosophy and yoga and meditation, and whatever, is to transmute, convert that sort of entropic surplus into something pragmatic and useful for not just yourself, but other people. So anyways, man, you know, that's sort of a circuitous way of just saying like, you know, consciousness is sort of synonymous with, you know, an ethical obligation, you know, to ourselves and other people. And I know that, you know, I'm sort of leaving myself open to, to be made fun of, but I'm not, making it up i'm not saying it you know like i think finding the workaround of violence has been you know key to a lot of the things that we've accomplished and also i do think that you know there is a sort of a drive in the media uh you know globally to sort of like you know present conflict as sort of the only inevitable option which you know that may be the case but um and that's part of the apocalyptic and that's also part of sort of the uh the feral aspect of of culture not having emotional intelligence and um systems for transmuting difficult complex experiences you know they don't teach they don't teach us how to deal with our experience that's up to your parents or that's up to your therapist or that's up to the fucking pills you take but it's not you know it's not taught as a personal responsibility and i think that that's maybe a clue because if you look at you know religion for the last two thousand years like we're not really taught to how to have a robust, healthy, fruitful internal experience. Uh, I think it was sort of implied by the liberal arts uh, and humanities. It was sort of like, well, you know, if you can't be in power, you can be adjacent to power. You can be in theater. You can be an artist. You can be a singer. You can be, a, uh, you know, whatever. So it's like art is adjacent to power. Art serves power. But I don't even think that, you know, there's a pedagogy for, for that stuff in general, for the most part anymore. We don't appreciate it. We don't have time for it. And uh, I don't know. Well, don't know. well yeah. th thank but you. I think, I think it's, it's a missing piece. You know, it's something that's been deliberately sort of like occluded over and over again um, to the point where this narcissistic sort of uh, vibe has just like cloaked everything where it's just like you can only say – uh, very pat banal things to other people now. You can't. You can't talk. You can't do anything because people aren't capable of having a robust, uh, objective conversation. So they get triggered by difficult issues that then immediately make their internal experience ultra personal. And then there's an argument. And I think that's a big part of the issue is that people don't know how to experience themselves. Period. Like it just at a most basic like. Physio, you know, physiognomic level. Like they don't know how to name and identify and work with internal experiences, which is kind of a banal thing. But, you know, I do think that's sort of at the root of 
a lot of the misrule. It's just people got their inside super fucked up. Right, right, and I think, and I think that's really sort of the the boon of this of this sort of time of the year. It's like it's a way to turn it all inside out to reveal your deepest pathologies. If you're having if you're having trouble in your marriage, I always recommend people do it in the streets during during these next few weeks. I implore you. If you're having if you're having trouble at school, you know, tell your teacher off in front of the class. Everything should be out in the open. Don't hurt anyone. Uh, but use foam swords or, or rubber swords or, or or like paper paper nooses or something. You know, if you're gonna perpetrate some sort of pretend violence, pretense. Pretense, I think, is the uh, is the the sort of steam alarm or the or the gas valve for 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 right. the human psyche, you know, and and that's really it. I mean, like, look at myself, for example, 469 years ago, born into a world where the only way for for a young boy from Kent to get ahead was to start chopping off people's heads and taking their boats away from them, and now I'm hosting a podcasting show. So, you know, and I I mean, I, I do have a sword within eyesight, but it. It's made of plastic and it's hollow. So, uh, you know, that's that's how it goes. I think peace is an inevitability too, beyond violence or post-violence. Uh, ahimsa, ahimsa is a great Hindu principle that I'd like to always advertise. Uh, in fact, um, if you go to Wikipedia, everyone, you know, I was going to do another ad for for this furniture store, but whatever, they don't pay me enough. So, so I'm gonna I'm gonna give you one from from Wikipedia. Look up ahimsa, A H I M S A. Put that into your into your DuckDuckGo search or a better, more secure search engine if you've got one. Go to Ahimsa on Wikipedia. Uh, it's a Sanskrit word that literally means nonviolence, uh, and it's a key virtue in uh, four major Indian religions: uh, Jainism, Buddhism, Hinduism, and Sikhism. And uh, and actually, let's sort of see what we got here for time. I hope you like the song that's going on in the background. We're sort of double, triple timing it. I've got about ten seconds, so let me see. Let me see if uh, if, uh, if if there's a good quote. Here we go. Um. Uh, oh, oh goodness, goodness. Uh, okay, so 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 this is from the Anguttara Nikaya uh, V.177, translated by Martin Bachelor. And, and he says, these five trades, O monks, should not be taken up by a lay follower. Trading with weapons, trading in living beings, trading in meat, trading in intoxicants, and trading in poison. I could debate him on the intoxicants point, but for the rest of it, <laughs> pretty good, pretty good. Uh, Zumi, it's been, it's been a pleasure having you here, and hopefully sometime soon. And thanks for having me. Talk to you later. Till then.